that the object and scope of this prophecy, we conceive it to be mainly to set out what concerneth the church and occasionally to touch any other thing as may serve to that end. For it is sent for the good of our servants of our Lord Jesus Christ to arm them against trials, to keep them from being offended with them and to comfort them under them. Here now the reading of God's inspired word of comfort to his church. Revelation 6, starting at verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. And when, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the rocks and mountains, Fall on us! 
and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Thus far the reading of God's holy word, Revelation chapter 6. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of us. Here in this chapter we have the first, what we might say, futuristic vision of the book of Revelation. Remember that in the first few chapters we had a vision of our Lord Jesus Christ. That vision was to prepare John for the subsequent visions of things that would come to pass hereafter. John was told in chapter 1 verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Here begin the things hereafter, after the days of John and the seven churches. Those things that should shortly come to pass, chapter 1, verse 1, were demonstrated to John in that first vision. Chapters 4 and 5, you'll recall, move him from the Isle of Patmos and the vision he saw there to what? Come up hither, up into the heavenly throne room. I will show you things to come, God told him. Things that should come to pass hereafter, chapter 4, verse 1. Not those on the Isle of Patmos, but from the heavenly throne room. Not from your captivity, not from the persecution, but from my decree, we saw in chapter 5, in a scroll sealed up with seven seals. God's decree concerning those future things that would come to pass. The subsequent portion, I believe, of Revelation divides itself into two parts. We have chapters 4 through 11, the first vision that John sees of future things. Then we have chapters 12 through 22, the second vision concerning future things. And you'll notice that God starts over from the beginning of this age in chapter 12. Let's just look there very briefly at chapter 12 so you can see what I'm referring to. Look at chapter 12, verse 1, if you would, please. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, a dragon. And notice the dragon, what does he want to do? He wants to eat up the man-child. Who is the man-child? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his incarnation, his first coming. Well, wait a second. Didn't John just describe in those chapters that precede the revelation of God's judgment and the end of the age and the end of the whore? Well, yes, he did. And here the Lord resets. Here he starts over. Here he expands principally on the doctrine of the Antichrist, his rise and his ruin from chapters 12 and following. So let's go back then to chapter 6. Here in the seals that are broken of this scroll, God gives a very brief and compact revelation of all the events also covered in chapters 12 and following. And we'll see this as we go through. Chapters 4 and 5, we have the preface to this vision of the seven seals. Chapter 6, verse 1, which we've just read the whole chapter, all the way through chapter 8, verse 1, we have the opening of the seven seals for the glory of God by the Lamb of God. 
We see the Lamb of God restraining that final judgment we'll see in chapter 7 until what happens? Till all the servants of God are sealed with the mark of God. And then the final judgment comes. God being patient toward his people. Chapter 8, verse 2 through chapter 11, verse 19, or the end of chapter 11, we have the seven angelic trumpets. The seven thunders sealed up. The consolation of God's people, the resurrection and judgment of the great day, and the viewing of the Ark of the Testament. All that happens in the, that portion from chapter 8, verse 2, through the end of chapter 11. Then in chapters 12 through 14, we have the hinge. He's turning from what went before in the revelations of the thunders and also the trumpets that God sent and the seven seals. And now he's preparing for the seven vials of the wrath of God to be revealed in the rest of the book. Chapters 12 through 14 then provide us a hinge. That second vision or the third prophecy, the first vision in chapter 1, the next vision here from chapters 4 through chapter uh, 11, and then the final vision being chapters 12 through 22. So 12 through 14 hinge us from this to that, from the second vision to the third vision. Chapters 15 through 22, we have the golden vials and the conclusion of all things more largely explained. Chapter 15 provides a preface to the seven last plagues or the seven woes as they are called the vials of the wrath of God with the song of Moses and the Lamb. Chapter 16 has the seven vials of God's wrath poured out upon the earth. And then chapters 17 through 22, we have a larger exposition of the rise and ruin of the Antichrist, the triumph of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice, mark it down, the two women. We have on the one hand the lawful wife, decked for wedding with her husband at the end of this book. And what do we find before then? We have a whore called Babylon, mystery Babylon, clothed in scarlet and purple and gold. She professes to be the wife of Christ, but she is actually a whore. On the other hand, you have the actual wife adorned by God himself, radiant with the glory of Almighty God. So this is the final picture and the final battle, chapter 17 through 22. Now then, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we have the first seal and the white horse rider. Verse 1 tells us, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, Christ now showing us those things that should come to pass after the age of the apostles, after the days of the seven churches in Asia and the things that they would suffer. And I believe this very clearly shows us the age of imperial Rome. Do you recall how quickly the gospel spread in those early days? Well, he tells us, he hears the noise of thunder, the God of glory thundereth, the lion-like thunder that comes forth, we'll see in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. The thunders that would be heard when the Ark of the Testament is seen in chapter 11, verse 19. What did God do to the Philistines? He thundered upon them. What did he do when he revealed his law at Sinai? Thunder and lightning and earthquakes. God's going to do something royal and he's going to de devour and destroy his adversaries. So one of the four beasts, verse 1, 
says to him, come and see. This must be the beast who is the first of the four in chapter 4, verse 7. For we will find the second, the third, and the fourth in verses 3, 5, and 7 of this chapter. So this must be, although it says a beast or one beast, it is actually the first of them with the lion's face, thus the roaring of the thunder. He gives a command for John to see. Remember what seers do? They see visions. Come and see, he says. Behold, verse 2, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Now the Romans, when they would come back from their victory marches, would have what sort of horses do you imagine? White horses, victorious horses of conquest. Our Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 45 verse 4 is said to go forth conquering and to conquer and he has arrows that he shoots into his adversaries. That's what it's referring to. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. This describes in fact this participle conquering when it says he went forth. How did he go forth conquering? As soon as he went forth conquering subduing his adversaries, quick and easy conquest, in other words. Tertullian, in his Apology Against the Jews, says that the haunts of the Britons, inaccessible to the Romans, were subjugated to Christ, conquering and to conquer. Rome, again and again, wanted to destroy the Scots. Could they do it? No, they couldn't. They built a wall so that they could keep the Scots away from them. Hadrian's Wall. Why? Because they could not conquer them. But what of Christ? Did he conquer the Britons? Like that. Easy. Going forth. Conquering. And to conquer. With the purpose of conquest, in other words. The structure there is the purpose clause. In order that he should conquer. That's what it says. To conquer. Christ reigning. Making his enemies his footstool. I notice then this doctrine. The first age of the church included a rapid progress and conquest. The first age of the church, that's what he's describing. This first seal, the things that should come hereafter, quick and rapid progress, the gospel going forth, conquering and to conquer. The purpose of Christ's writing was to conquer, and we read of this in the book of Acts, don't we? Thousands converted at one sermon. Just one, 3,000 men. Then another one, 5,000 men. Going forth to the nations of the earth and them subduing to such an extent that in Ephesus, what did they have? Riots. Why? Because people stopped buying their gods. They were listening to Paul. They took thousands of dollars of books and burned them of their own will. Why? Because the gospel went forth conquering and to conquer. Let us be realistic and reckon with Christ's purposes. Christ's purpose is not uniform. He has varying purposes for varying ages. This one is an age of conquest. We will see next the age of death, the age of the sword. Let us then be realistic of God's purposes. They're not uniform in that way. So then the second seal, the red horse rider, verses 3 and 4. The second beast, or the calf-like beast, the face of a calf, red like fire or blood, in verse 4, he was able to take peace from the earth 
and that he would cause men to kill each other. Violence, bloodshed, war and rumors of war, persecutions and death by violence. And you can verify this very easily by studying histories. You need to look no further than Fox's Book of Martyrs and you will find that after the age of conquest comes the age of blood. Persecution after persecution after persecution until finally, praise God, a Christian emperor in Constantine. This man had, or this horse rider had, a great sword, the beheading sword, the battle sword, the sword that puts malefactors to death, the power of butchery and death. I note then this doctrine. The second age of the church included bloody opposition. Why was that? Well, heathen Rome realized something. Our gods are on the way out. And if we keep our piety and our gods, what are we going to have to do? Stamp out the Christians. And what happened? As the blood of Christians was shed, the, the martyr said, it is like seed. You cut down one and many more spring up. You can't stop this, in other words. But the age of the red horse rider, fire and sword, to seek to stamp out the conquest of the gospel. And let me note this just in way of application. Would you live a godly life in Christ Jesus and be conquered by the Savior? John Trapp says there is no such conquest as to be conquered by Christ, no such liberty as to be bound by Him, but do you think men will love you if you serve the Lord Jesus? If you live a godly life, Think they're going to cheer and applaud? No, they're going to oppose you. So as the white horse goes forth conquering, what follows is the red horse, the day of persecution and death. Do we pray and long for revival and a reformation of the true religion? Well, what do you think is going to happen? You think Satan's going to sit there and say, sure, go ahead. Yep, all those people, all my minions in the world, they'll just leave you untouched. No, we will face trouble persecution, and sword. And though, just as a sidelight here, though in these ages recorded by the Holy Ghost, we have the principal marks of the age, conquest, that doesn't mean there wasn't persecution in the age of conquest, and it doesn't mean there wasn't conquest in the age of persecution. All it means is the major theme of that age is either conquest or persecution, or as we'll see, famine, in the third, verses 5 and 6, the black horse rider. This is the beast with a man's face, the third beast. There's a black horse, which the Westminster annotations note as a note of famine, which maketh men's faces black. You can read of this in Lamentations chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. He that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, or a pair of scales, some believe this represents justice. Some believe it represents commerce. It might actually represent both. The balances in his hand seem to be related to the scarce provision that is given. Then notice verse 6. This is unusual. There's a voice from the midst of the four beasts. Now, who is that? Who is in between the four beasts? Well, it's the lamb or it's God who sits on the throne, one of the two. God speaks with a divine voice 
and thunders and says, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. Now, the penny or denarius in Greek was a day's wages. We see this in the gospel. A man of uh, ordinary labor would earn a penny a day. So here, notice, what do they get? One measure of wheat for how much? One day's labor. They're living hand to mouth. There's not abundance. There isn't extra. And notice, some people will eat barley, which in the ancient world, do you know who ate the barley? Your animals did. You didn't. You ate wheat. These coarse grains, you give those to your animals, but when times are tough, what do you eat? You eat the animals' provision. Then you eat the animals. Then in God's justice, you eat each other. And that's the saddest part of Leviticus 26. But here notice, famine, dearth. There is no extra to go around. Everybody's living hand to mouth. And what sort of famine do you suppose this is? First you have the age of progress, then you have the age of persecution, then what do you find? The blackness of heresy and errors, the Arians springing up, the Marcionites spring up, then you have the Pelagians spring up, error after error, and there is a famine of the word of God in this age. An age of black famine. An age where you must measure out the word of God little by little because there isn't much of it. Do you remember what Athanasius said or is reported to have said? He was told the whole world was against him. The emperor said, you're in error. You're banished. You can't preach that gospel. You can't preach the doctrine of the Trinity. Get out of, the, of our world. And he said, well, if the world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is against the world. How many were preaching the true word of God? All the councils of the church were Arian councils. Did you know that? There were more ecumenical councils with more bishops preaching the heresy of Arianism than ever gathered at a Trinitarian council. So how do we distinguish? Wait, they were apostolic churches meeting together in council. Aren't they infallible? No, they taught error in the age of blackness, the age of famine for the word of God. But notice, the voice of God says, See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Wait a second. Do we have extra good things in an age of famine? Do we, you don't have enough bread to eat. You think you're going to have oil? Of course not. But see that thou hurt it not. Do no injustice to my anointing oil, to the wine of my blood, in other words. Though heresy and error causes a famine of the word of God, what does God preserve? The good things of his spirit, the good things of the gospel. There are few who preach, but they are still there. This is an aorist subjunctive of prohibition, meaning don't even begin to hurt the oil and the wine. Don't even think about it, the lamb is saying, or the father is saying. A remnant shall still be anointed with the Spirit of God. They will still feed and drink on the Lord's body and blood. The balance to measure out the dainties of God. Yes, there will be little of the word of God to go forth. There will be a famine of the word, but there will still be those precious things among his people. Then we have the fourth seal. 
the pale horse rider. This is the voice of the eagle, chapter 4, verse 7, the fourth beast. The pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. This word pale can mean to turn yellow or pale in your face. It's what happens when people go a long time in a very unhealthy condition. A prolonged absence of nourishment or of life-giving support and medicines. He begins to turn yellow, in other words. And this is the pale horse rider. He has power to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. A slow and steady decline toward death. The man's internal organs shut down and so his face turns yellow. So the church is filled with all this lifeless nonsense and slowly wastes away toward death. This is the fourth age of the church, including a slow decay toward death and starvation, persecution and dishonor to the bodies of men by the evil beasts of the earth. Did you know that there was a council held that said that if you don't worship graven images, you are anathema. This was a supposed ecumenical council. And it was all the bishops of the church who said, bow to the image, make the image, or you're not a Christian. You can't be holy unless you worship images. And then what did they do? They persecuted those who spoke against their images, who destroyed their images in church or in state. They raised army against those and murdered those who would not listen to their lawless decrees. These beasts of the earth, these wicked and ungodly, after ages of starvation from the word of God, began to persecute the godly who believe in scripture. That brings us to the fifth seal and the martyr's complaint and imprecation. Verse 9, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for what? For the power of the bishops, for the truth of their own opinions? No, for the word of God. What is written in the scriptures, we will fight for that to the death. We will give our lives for it. And where, pray tell, do they find shelter? Under the place of sacrifice, under the altar. There reside their souls. They've been slain for the word of God. They live unto the Lord. They don't sleep in their souls. The sacrifice of Christ covers them. The word of God, the teaching of scripture informs them and the antichrist slays them and turns them into martyrs. We've gone then from heathen Rome to anti-Christian Rome fighting against the true believers in scripture. This is the seal of the martyrs. They say, how long, O Lord, holy and true? You cannot look upon sin without disgust. You are holy. You cannot fail to accomplish your threats and your promises. You are true. And so they call God, when will you judge? When will you avenge our blood? And we will see this in exquisite detail in the latter portion in the third vision. The whore will be burnt with fire. All of her goods and wares and all of her dependents will be destroyed and will mourn at her fall when Babylon finally falls. So they request that God would bring his judgment on those 
men of the earth. That's very important. These beasts, these men of the earth who mind earthly things, as Paul says of the Judaizers who taught justification by works and the observance of man-made holiness, who did not listen to the word of God, but rather the doctrines and commandments of men. The tradition of the elders are called beasts in the Bible. Men groveling upon the earth, subject to ordinances of man, touch not, taste not, handle not, all which perish with the using. These are given white robes, every single one of them. They are more than conquerors. They are the victors. That's what a victor would wear, a robe of white. They have been cleared, their innocence established, their enemies and persecutors convicted. But God has a purpose. There will be more suffering. The fellow servants and their brethren should be killed just as they were, and there's a full tally that cannot happen the judgment until all have been put to death. Then verses 12 through 17, we have the sixth seal and the great day of the Lamb's wrath. We have a great earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon becoming blood in verse 12. This harkens back to Joel chapter 2 and to the judgment that came against the Jewish people and nation when they rejected Christ and persecuted the godly. They fell under the same judgment. They slew martyrs, they paid the price. So the Antichrist will slay martyrs and he will pay the price. Notice there verse 13, the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. John Trapp says, this is the fall of Rome's dunghill deities with their chimerims or chimney chaplains, the priests, they fall. Babylon is ruined. All of her priesthood, all of her stars that spangle the sky brought down to nothing. All of the light she shot forth will be darkened by God himself. Then notice, the heaven will depart as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Well, this must be the end of the world. The blood moon must be the precursor of the end of the world. Isaiah 34, 4, it tells us that the Edomites were going to be destroyed with this very same language. Now, who is the Edomite? Half covenant, half out. Why? Because he's profane. Because he desires earthly things. He does not desire the covenants of promise, the testament and inheritance. So he says, well, what, what good will this firstborn do me if I don't have my pottage, if I don't have my stuff? And so what does he do? He exchanges with Jacob and says, I'll take that pottage, you take the blessing. Half-breeds, halfway there, half-heathen, half-godly. That is the Edomites. And what happens to this whore, this half-breed? She is destroyed. She is utterly and totally ruined, as if you were rolling up a scroll, as if you threw her mountains into the heart of the sea, as if you said all of your islands are shaken and moved out of their places. The Antichrist will rage and persecute, but in the end, the God of justice will bring the blood of the martyrs upon his head. Then notice, the kings of the earth 
the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man. These are the devotees of Babylon. Note it, chapter 18, verses 9 through 11, chapter 19, verses 13 through 21. It mentions the same groups of people, and it's when Babylon falls. Here they partake in her whoredoms, so they partake in her judgments. They know the judgment against her is coming. They know that they are doomed. They dwell upon the earth. They are like beasts in their errors and heresies. And let me note this, the redemption of the soul is precious. All the riches that these men gained, could that help them in the day of God's wrath? Could it buy them an escape ticket from Babylon? No. Babylon goes down, all her devotees go down together with her. The lamb is filled with wrath. They want to hide themselves from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. Oh, we can understand that. Isn't that the God of the Old Testament who rules as a king and judges his enemies? Do we understand that the lamb himself has the same wrath? Now this is a paradox, a verbal contradiction. Lambs don't have wrath, okay? They just don't. If you have a gentle and mild lamb, you do not expect wrath out of them unless you have done something seriously wrong. And now the lamb says, those are my sheep that you killed. Those are my saints that you slew. That is my worship that you corrupted. That is my spouse that you pretended to be in all your whoredoms. The wrath of the lamb. They talk about Jesus meek and mild. Oh yes, there is a time when our Lord Jesus will not even break a bruised reed. But notice, that time is past. The time of judgment is now at hand, and he does what is suited to the time of judgment, which is wrath against his adversaries and them that do not receive the word of God, them that do not keep his commandments, them who do persecute his saints. The great day of his wrath is come. There is a reckoning. No one will stand if they are wicked. The man of sin will be slain by the brightness of the coming of Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 8. And thus far the exposition of Revelation, chapter 6.